Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Thomas Judd, who ran the Marathon de Saab around his training as an NHS anaesthetist. We discuss everything around human endurance, performance, uh, through his journey of training and completing the ultramarathon. Tom also has a fantastic background uh, in retrieval medicine, and we touch on communication, as well as his background in medical technology and its application on how to build high-performing teams in the clinical space and beyond. Hey, Tom, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Perfect. Really good. Thank you. Uh, great to have you on the podcast today. Um, I just want to kick things off for the listeners. Um, if you could just sort of explain a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Tom Jav, I'm an anaesthetic registrar, currently working in Musgrove Park Hospital down in Taunton. Um, a background from my like, medical side is I ACCS trainee, finished uh, in 2017. Uh, over the last three years, I've taken time out of training to kind of explore other interests in medicine and outside of medicine. And I will be heading back into training as an ST3 and all six down in Wessex Deanery. So in my three years out from training, uh, the first year I did a year as a clinical teaching fellow. So getting a postgraduate certificate in medical education uh, and did some research on using VR as an educational tool um, with medical students. I then uh, spent four months traveling around South America before heading off to New Zealand to work for 12 months where I did six months of anesthetics followed by six months of pediatric intensive care uh, with a bit of retrieval medicine with that. Uh, And since returning back to the UK uh, at the beginning of this year, I took up a post of retrieval medicine, uh, repatriating um, people back to the UK from around uh, Europe and North Africa. Uh, and then from the beginning of April, I actually have gone back into the NHS to help out during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic in intensive care and anaesthetics. Uh, my main interests outside of uh, main interest in medicine have been mainly education, use of virtual reality, um, and kind of from an anaesthetic side, particularly trauma and pre-hospital medicine. Uh, outside of medicine, big interest for me is uh, rowing. I learned to row at the University of Bristol and row throughout med school and have con- continued to row uh, since graduation um, and currently still row for none such bloke club, which is a University of Bristol alumni. Uh, more recently, uh, since graduation, I've taken up uh, ultramarathon running, which uh, culminated in running the Marathon de Saab in 2017 while I was doing my anaesthetic core training. Awesome. Now we obviously know each other very, very well indeed. We were at um, med school together um, and we weirdly haven't actually had an opportunity both because we've been so busy doing different things to talk about some of your interests outside of uh, healthcare and medicine. And obviously one of the big things that I'm interested in is human performance and uh, amazing kind of feats of uh, performance, whether that's in the sporting world, whether it's in the business world, especially in, in the medical world. And one of the things I really want to kick things off um, with is talking about uh, the ultramarathon, the marathon de Saab that you did. So this is something that I find insane. I've run uh, two marathons. I did New York and I did um, Tokyo in Japan. An ultramarathon is the next level up. So could you explain a little bit about why you did that? Uh, 
yeah i mean it's a bit odd that we never really spoke about it i kind of um the decision to run it it's something uh i think way back in like early 2000 james cracknell was obviously a rower uh gb rower and olympic uh gold medalist ran and started doing these kind of endurance feats i think the first thing he did with the marathon de saab um and then went on to like row the Atlantic. And I remember watching the kind of documentary and him doing it and thinking that was, you know, amazing and something I was really interested in. Um, and so it kind of always kind of, I think that kind of ins- was the, the spark, the kind of imagining like running it. Um, I always then looked into it. It was always quite expensive and I was never really, a, like I didn't really run, like, you know, at university, I didn't, didn't do running. I just, I purely did rowing. Um, then uh 2016 i think uh an evening in uh with uh leone <laughs> we were sitting sitting at the flat nothing we to your wife just, for anyone who yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> might not know uh, so my, my girlfriend at the time is now my wife uh, we were just and i didn't really know how we got into the conversation about it but we were having a bottle of wine uh talking about it and we we're like how amazing she mentioned as well i didn't know at the time that she always thought about doing it as well so I was like, oh, well, let's, you know, half a bottle of wine each. We were like, oh, let's just have a look and see. And see. Uh, you went onto the website and you could just register an interest to go onto the waiting list. It was, the race was full. Um, and they were like, oh, if you pay like a, a 500 pound deposit each, you can go on the waiting list. If you don't hear anything, then you get your money back. And we were like, oh, okay, well, let's just do it. See what happens. Probably won't get a space. Um, and then... Then at the beginning of uh, January 2016, we both got a confirmation email saying that we <laughs> we'd actually uh, got both got a place and we were we were running in in just over 12 months' time. So amazing, amazing. Yeah. So tell tell me that about that conversation you had with Leone when you both realised that that you'd been uh, selected, even though you might you know may have been thinking this this wasn't something that was a, a lock at that stage. Um, so there's a lot of panic. I, because I initially got the email and Leonie didn't have one. So it was this 24 hour period where I was running on my own. Um, Leonie's like done running at school. She, um, I think she ran at nationals, national level at schools. Um, so she, she is a runner and she's always done a lot of running and I'd never done any. Um, and so the, the person that wasn't really the runner out of the two of us ended up having the space. So there was a lot of panic and, and fear and we hadn't really, look too much into it apart from just applying so i don't think really the the kind of when we've both found out we were looking at what what we'd actually signed up for i think the reality kind of sunk in that this was not you know although you could just enter it as a race this is something that we really needed to take quite seriously otherwise we, we weren't going to finish it like it wasn't it wasn't going to be a possibility at all and i think just just to emphasize this is an ultra marathon in a desert in very, very humid conditions. So, so what's the actual distance and what's the kind of average temperature? Can you, can you remember off the top of your head? Yeah, so the, you're in the Sahara in Morocco. You, it's a six-day race. Uh, each day is a marathon. And then day four is actually, uh, um, day four and day five are combined. So it's a, it's a, double, it's a, a double marathon back to back. So about 56 miles um, or 52 miles all in one go, which you have up to 36 hours to complete. Um, average temperatures go up to, I think, 40 degrees. You carry all your own 
equipment. The only thing they give you is water, which is rationed. Uh, so you're carrying your food for the, for the, for the week, uh, your sleeping bag, you know, you change your clothes, um, all the safety equipment that they make you take. Uh, yeah, and the only thing they give you at, at specific checkpoints is the water. So you have to manage your water. Um, bear in mind, like, so when we signed up to this, the furthest I'd ever run was a 10 K. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't done a half marathon. I hadn't done a marathon. Um, so, you know, tr- training started quite early. You got, we, with regards to kits and things that kind of came a bit later, the first thing for us, for me particularly was actually just getting out and actually starting running. And how, how do you, cause obviously you're both, so your, your, um, wife at the time, then girlfriend was uh, a dentist. You were, uh, training and anesthetics so you know busy careers uh where you're doing night shifts you're working weekends how do you plan not only a training schedule for uh, a, a marathon but for basically six marathons how how do you how do you sort of factor that into to your day-to-day job yeah um so i mean the, the training program to start you know the first thing was i couldn't we couldn't even start like a, an ultramarathon training program because we weren't we didn't have the the fitness to go into that so when we found out we got the, the place in january 2016 the race was april 2017 so you have you know we had a reasonable amount of like running time towards it so the first thing we did was we just downloaded like off the internet a um a half marathon training program and entered the overall half marathon which is about two months time uh, and it, like and completed, you know, did that. Uh, then the next thing was um, booking on. The, we did our first ultra marathon in the August of that year, which was 100 hundred k. So that was the first time we were then looking at having to build up that kind of distance, uh, fitting it in. It, I mean, it, when you when you look at the training programs, the main the main thing is is actually quite a lot of short speed work hill sprints running up to 10k so as long as you do, you know we do like four runs during the week uh which we'd fit around work whether we do them in the evening uh if it was an easy um low tempo run we live in taunton which is where i was working again at the time so you would just get up a bit that bit earlier and run to work in the morning as kind of as your training session to kind of t- t- tick it off um the weekends they were a bit more challenging, really. The weekends are where you build up more of your miles um, and slowly building up to, you know, running for four or five hours on a Saturday and then follow up with two, a two-hour, three-hour run on a, on a Sunday to kind of build up the endurance and recovery in your legs. Um, fitting that in around like a social life or being being on call was then quite difficult. For it, it meant... For Leonie, she didn't do any on call, so she could always do those runs on the weekends. I would then have to end up uh, shifting. So if I was like off on the Friday before being on for the weekend, I'd do the long runs then. So you kind of have to just be a bit more flexible. Uh, not really worry about missing a session. I think, you know, we weren't, it wasn't like we were going out to perform and get like a top, you know, top 10 finish. This was, it, our goal was to complete it. Um, and so, you know, missing one session because work's getting in the way or you're getting quite tired is, is, um, I think it was important not to get too stressed about that kind of thing. Otherwise it doesn't become fun. 
how how helpful was it having a training partner when you're doing this? Because I would imagine that going from minimal running experience to having to put in, you know, regular running hours, especially in uh, the UK. And although the Southwest is a lovely area to live, it's not uh, particularly sunny all year round. I think that's fair to say. So how did, did you have any like days where you were just like, I, I, I just don't want to get out and I don't want to put in these, you know, these miles. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was funny. We, we both had days like that you know and not not infrequently and i think the difference was when you've got someone else that's doing it with you i don't think we ever had a day where we both said no i really don't want to go i think if that had happened then we like we wouldn't have done we wouldn't have done training um it just so happened that when leonie felt colin she doesn't want to go for a run i was like no no we need to we need to go and we then go out and do it uh and it was and, and vice versa uh it was quite nice that, you know a lot of the runs for ultramarathon running, they're not hard runs. It's just distance. And so the, 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 the pace that you're running at, you, you should be able to talk at anyway. So it's actually just quite nice that you go for a long run and we just chat and just talk about things. Um, which has meant that we then carried on running and doing that, doing that since. Um, Cause it was quite a lot of the time that we then spent together and caught up on things. I think when you both, working long hours, busy jobs, you, you don't necessarily, you know, you then come home and relax and, you know, sit in front of the TV or watch something. You don't actually really talk that much. And I think we found that we doing this kind of thing and with that training that we actually ended up talking a lot more, um, which is really, you know, really nice. And I mean, the, the other thing about this particular ultramarathon is that it's in, it is in the desert. So how did you, think about acclimatizing to the heat and temperature for when you actually did it yeah so it's kind of you didn't really have to worry about temperature so much until like a month or two before um regards to running on sand again you don't want to run too early on sand you're more like potentially more likely to get an injury uh and the other thing is running with weight so our, the minimum pack weight is six and a half kilos. Uh, our pack weight, I think we got down to eight and a half. Um, that's because we weren't willing to spend kind of as um, yet closer to the lightweight equipment just costs so much more. So I think for every like hundred grams we were, you would save on weight. You had to spend an extra hundred pounds on the lighter kit. Uh, so we just accepted that eight and a half was probably going to be as, as I mean, we didn't want to spend all like, you know, buying, buying top, top of the range equipment. Um, so the, I think the first thing you do is mainly just elevation. There's quite a lot of elevation and there's the sand dunes, uh, and what they call jebels, which are basically just, um, massive hills, like rocky hills. Um, you know, so it wasn't unusual on the course. I have an elevation over, you know, a climb over a thousand meters uh, over the over the range of the day, so it's you know it's a huge huge amount of up and down, uh, especially with the dunes. You don't feel like you're going particularly high, but you're constantly going up, then down, then up, then down. Um, so we just plan in a lot of elevation from that side of things. With regards to heat cha- uh, heat training, uh, as the weather kind of got warmer and we trained through the winter, you then keep wearing layers when you go out for a run 
So even though the weather gets warmer, you keep wearing the same number of layers so that you're kind of getting used to being overheated when you're running. Um, the other thing we did was we went to Gloucester University uh, Environmental Chamber for three um, like acclimatization sessions, which which was really interesting. So we did, had a initially we went and had a chat with them. Um, they you know they were quite expensive sessions to do, so we only did three one-hour sessions, uh, one each week in the in the kind of the month before the race. Uh, and that even doing that was, you know, there was a huge, huge difference. And we got an awful lot of information back from doing it. So I think in the first session we went in uh, and the guy was like, look, just, just walk or so there was a treadmill and a bike. So Leonie was on the bike and I was on the treadmill and then we swapped over at halfway. So for the first 10, 15 minutes, he was like, just walk on the treadmill. And Leonie was just doing quite lightly on the bike. Um, and they would come in periodically and check our core, core temperatures. Uh, I think within 15 minutes, my temperature had gone up to like 39 degrees from 36, uh, which is the point where he almost has to take me out within 15 minutes. Right. I've been slow <laughs> jogging and a bit of walking. Um, so, so he's like, you just, just go sit in the corner. And then, um, so I was like, this is quite worrying. I've done all this running training and I can't even actually run in the heat without overheating. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but then by the third session, we, I spent half an hour running at like uh, the pace I had been uh, and half an hour on the bike uh, without that, when keeping my core temperature down to 37, 38 degrees. So it, even, even those three one hour sessions made a huge difference the other load of information that we got from that was uh, how much uh, we sweat uh, and how much water we kind of, so how much water we were going to lose over the course of the race. Uh, the interesting thing that the guy said that we learned from that was uh, I needed to keep my heart rate below 150. Since my heart rate went above 150 and we were running, uh, I started to sweat too much, which then meant the amount of water we knew we were going to get from the race wasn't going to be enough if I pushed myself any harder than that. So, so then when we went out and we're racing, I had a wristwatch on and we just made sure that my heart rate wasn't above 150. And if it, if it did, then we were kind of slow for a walk as a recovery. Again, there it, it was no point kind of pushing beyond that and risking not finishing or getting heat stroke or dehydration. Um, because, you know, finishing was the aim as opposed to getting a faster time. I mean, again, like what a great example of, of using technology to give you new insights, new data that you, you wouldn't normally be able to pick up or even think about uh, if you yeah. to just kind of rock up, you know, that, that's absolutely amazing. And what about, I mean, I remember when I was, um, so similar to you, I've, I'm not like a long distance runner. I, I did things basically for a challenge, but I remember even when I was training for um, the marathons I did you occasionally like overtraining, you pick up injuries or you have to have like sort of time off. Did, did you have, have any kind of particular setbacks during your training? Uh, quite early on. Um, I, I did particularly, um, we, we run the half marathon, uh, kind of a year before the race and then we're building up to run a marathon, uh, just on a standard marathon training program. And I, um, 
got like a, a knee injury, so ended, ended up not not being able to run and needed to getting a lot of physio. Um, and that was just down to I hadn't done the miles before and my body just wasn't used to it. Um, I wasn't stretching enough. Um, so that meant we didn't, I ended up not running a marathon because I was injured. So the, the, the first marathon I ended up running was the ultra marathon in the, a couple of months afterwards in August before the marathon, the marathon to start the following April, uh, which we, again, I hadn't done a huge amount of training for. And we, the reason we decided to do it anyway, uh, was, was kind of a you know, a big psychological factor. We knew that the longest stage we were going to have to run in one to go and the marathon to solve was going to be about 90 kilometers. And this race was, uh, was a hundred. So the idea was, is that as long as we finished it, we then knew that we had, even though I'd been injured on a background of not having done a huge amount of training, we had actually run that distance, the furthest distance we were ever going to have to, uh, we, we did, we didn't complete the ultra marathon. Uh, we we got to 90k before we got timed out um, and got pulled pulled off the course. Uh, but I think that was a huge, actually, psychological boost that it was actually this was going to be an achievable goal. I think at that point it had always seemed just something that was so big and unobtainable. Uh, but even though we hadn't finished it, at least going 90 kilometres, which is roughly as far as we would go, the longest distance without a break in the marathon, the Saab meant on the background of not a huge amount of training at that point because of injury, it was something that was then achievable. And we really then pushed, pushed on from there. Quite lucky that once I kind of got over that injury and after that race, uh, I didn't have any further injuries. Um, the only picked up a, a very small one when we started running with weight, uh, she ended up getting quite a lot of uh, neck strain, neck spasm from, from where the backpack was kind of sitting. So we ended up changing uh, her bag that we we were going to go out running with, um, but that and that was quite close to the race. But that seemed to be okay. And then let, let's let's fast forward. So um, you've you've been through your training. You, you've um, you've got to a position where you know the the race is approaching rapidly, and you're out in Morocco. Um, what's going through your head the night before, and the, the days kind of leading up to the actual event itself? Yes, it's, I mean, it, it's an interesting um, kind of lead into a race. It's not, you'll see that all of it's arranged for you. So it, the race really starts when you arrive at the airport. It's a chartered plane. So everyone getting on that plane is doing the race. So you, you, know, you all meet at Gatwick and you, and you fly out to Morocco together. So kind of the night before you're kind of packing your make it, you know, triple checking your bag, you've gone through all, all your equipment, the exact amount of weight that you're going to have. You make sure that you're wearing your race trainers because you don't want to put them in the holes because if they go missing, that's, that's the, the race is even over before you started. Your, yeah, your hand luggage is your race pack because again, you don't want to let that out of your, out of your sight. Um, so you, you kind of uh, panicking about getting all of your kit through and making sure that you get through the airport and the other side and land in Morocco actually with everything that you can then start the race. Uh, so then book, book you onto the plane, you fly, fly over to Morocco and then as you come out, you'll get 
greeted by the staff for the race onto onto buses that then uh, drive you in into the desert. So as soon as you arrive, you get straight onto a bus that drives you into the desert. You then get sent around this clipboard and everyone's got to write their name on, on the clipboard. And that's how you arrange what tent you're going to be in. So they have, uh, they do put up a shelter, uh, like a bivouac type thing that's a small tent, shelters you from the, from the sun, but it's kind of open for, on, on each end. Eight people sleep in one of those um, through the whole race and you get like your number and you stay together for the whole week. Uh, so the guy that we've been sitting next to on the plane ended up being in a t- uh, tent with us. And then it's basically the people that were sitting around us. So it's completely random. Um, That's so crazy. A, I, guess, I guess you're hoping you don't get anyone who's very annoying or who snores, right? Yeah. So it, it was all weird. So I feel a bit sorry for Leonie. She was the only, only girl in our tent. It was in seven, seven uh, other guys. Um, Massive range of one talent and uh, ability and kind of background. So there were uh, two um, younger guys, must have been early 20s, one that had taken a sabbatical from a job in the city. Uh, one was uh, just, uh, I think, left university. It was a guy who worked um, as a, as a rest, uh, in a restaurant as a manager. Uh, and then there was a older gentleman who'd done a lot of uh, Ironman running, uh, Ironman races, and then and then was doing the marathon to Saab. And then there was a chap kind of in his mid fifties who'd done the race twenty years earlier, uh, and basically I think he'd just turned fifty and wanted to see whether he could whether he could still do it. Um, everyone's speeds were all quite quite different. So Angus, who uh, works at the restaurant, I think he came in the top 100 in the end. Um, wow. Well, and I, so, I guess as well, I guess as well, cause this is, I mean, it's technically like a solo race, but um, obviously when you're training, you're, you're, you know, unless you're training with a group, people are all going over. It's very much a kind of solo experience and your friends and like relatives back home might think, you know, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? But actually probably when you get on the plane and, and certainly when you get paired up, I'm sure there's like a lot of camaraderie and a lot of, uh, you know, teamwork that's that's going to help everyone get through. Is is that something that you kind of found? And, and I guess when you were seeing the other types of people doing it, were you a bit like, okay, you know, this is this is looking more achievable, or were you kind of intimidated by some of the people? Uh, I don't think we're ever intimidated. I think uh, you know, you made some really good friends. So JB, one of the guys that we met, came to our wedding. Um, we met him and he stayed in our tent uh, uh, when we were doing the race. Um, what surprised me was just the, the, you know, the, such the wide, wide range. So, uh, uh, Sean, who was the chap who just turned 50, he was really unprepared, didn't have like propagators, even though he's done it before, you know, brought like partially most of the, some of the equipment and he, but he walked the whole thing, his feet, you know, turned, you know, was absolutely shredded by the end of it, walked the whole thing. Um, some people had like iPad, uh, iPods for, for music when they miss it. He bought a book, so he would walk with his book uh, and <laughs> read that to keep him entertained. Um, and everyone, you know, the, the first couple of days, we were all like, "How are you? <laughs> how are you going to finish this? This is absolutely insane." Uh, and, the, and I remember after the long stage, like he, he he got in probably he was out there for the thirty three hours out in the you know. Wow. Trying to complete this, uh, the long stage. What, what book um, was he reading? 
I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's like War and Peace or like the, the Game yeah. of Thrones series. <laughs> so uh, and I remember when he arrived back, he you know, could, barely, could barely stand. Uh, he'd been pulled by the medics and given an emergency IV drip, uh, which you, in the race rules, it, it kind of, it's, a, it's a penalty, especially if you're one of the top guys, you get a big time penalty for it. For him, it, he didn't really, that was of no consequence. But if it happens for a second time, that's it. They pull you, you if you need it on a second time, they pull you from the race. They, they won't let you continue. Uh, and he could barely stand. He couldn't open his food. So the whole tent, you know, getting his shoes off, getting his bed out, um, cooking his dinner for him, uh, you know, just to help him and make sure and try and get him hydrated and recovered for like the final, final day to see if he could actually finish it. Wow. I wish he, wish he did. And that, I think that was kind of summed up that as soon as he got back, everyone, you know, instantly helped. Uh, did, did, is, did, you feel, did you feel kind of like obliged, I guess, as one of the only, you know, medics um, in obviously in that tent, but also in the race, did, did you have to pull out any medical skills or was it the provision of like medical help? So uh, like rife that you could just kind of chill out and concentrate on your running. Uh, no, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't really have to at all. You, there is the race is so well supported. Um, I think the the point that I kind of realised that was we were running uh, racing. You get to a checkpoint every time you get to a checkpoint. They want to um, they stamp your card, make sure that you've then gone through. That's when you get allocated your water for to, until you get to the next checkpoint. As we were going through, there was a uh, a guy who obviously who's coming just behind us. Um, and the woman's radio, radio, someone radio through saying check um, number three seven one or something, which was this chat that were coming in behind, and they were like, "Are you okay?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine." Uh, just like trying to you know, motivate you get through, get through the checkpoint, and get going again. Uh, and she's like, "No, no," she's like, "Just, just want to check you're okay." And she goes, "Just stand still for a second. <laughs> and it goes to stand still. And he instantly just starts leaning over to the left and fall, <laughs> starts to fall over, at which point oh, they just okay. grab him and put him, put him into a tent, um, get him some shade, make him drink some water. But it's all, it was all about facilitating people completing it as well. It wasn't like that was going to be the end, the end of his race. Um, they make, you know, that happened to one of the guys in our tent as well. They just, at the end of the race, he was in a complete mess of it. He was, I think he, Angus had a, I think it's the Solics in the seventies or eighties when he, when he finished across the finish line on one of the stages. So they, instead of giving it, he didn't want an IV drip. was obviously doing quite well in the standing. So they just make him drink his like allocated amount of water, rehydrate himself, reject his blood pressure and it was okay. So then he was released from the medical tent. So they were really, really good and kept a close eye on people. Um, there was one chap, I think, who ended up being uh, medevaced out in a helicopter I didn't didn't personally see see that happen, um, but he ended up in hospital. But you know, they they came back the next day and said that he you know he was doing well and he was fine. I think he probably had a, a heart attack or something, but he was doing all right. My goodness, and and what and for you, what obviously you were running it um, with the and you guys run it pretty much side by side. Um, what was what were some of the kind of like the highs and the lows of of the actual six day course for you personally? Uh, I mean, one of the big highs is the the start. You so you you, you arrive, um, 
into into the desert uh then the following day you kind of get up there's this you know there's a food tent is they give you all your, all your food and stuff before you start the race you need to be self-sufficient the race and the day before is like all the pre-check you register you get your number um and then the next day is like that's it it's the race um so everyone kind of getting ready standing on the front line and there you know countdown to to start and then they they play the highway to hell as the it's like the anthem of the race, which they play every morning <laughs> as the as you, as the race starts, and you're all running out into the middle of the desert. And I think that was probably one of the most uh, exciting bits. You know, really, really enjoying it. And that that happens every morning. It's a great atmosphere. Everyone's really excited to to go. And even you know, on the last day, everyone's absolutely knackered, but still, you know, everyone's excited. Um, and the atmosphere was just great at the start of the race. And you, the, you, obviously, you, you know, you obviously completed it, um, and you got a got a very good time. Um, what was when you actually the finish line? I guess was in sight, and then subsequently when you crossed it, what was kind of going through your mind at that stage? Uh, so I really struggled on the last day. Uh, we'd done we'd done the the long stage, uh, and we we completed that about eighteen hours, which meant that the following day we had a, a full day to recover. Um, Leone really struggled on the long stage she was getting a lot of shoulder pain still um, and there was one point I think I just she was she just kept complaining so I I, <laughs> I turned around and said well the options are just pull the push the emergency SOS button on your GPS and, and quit um, <laughs> or or shut up and carry on which I think in hindsight was probably a very brave move. It could have gone either way. But she then stopped complaining and, you know, kept kept moving forward and we finished that. So it was great. But I then really was struggling on the last day. And I ended up getting my, my own bit of tough love to keep, to keep going. And then as we, you know, running in, you, we were quite high up and you could see the finish line, but it just seemed to be, it seemed to be relatively close, but then it was just a flat expanse. So you kept running and it just never seemed to be getting any closer. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, you finally, uh, finally start hearing the music that was being played at the finish line. You're like, okay, we're actually getting quite close now. We're crossing the line. Um, and the race director, uh, race director is that he's there, you know, they're all handing out medals. Um, and it, yeah, it was just, just, just the best, best feeling really that, you know, finally finishing and having, having it, you know, having it, getting the medal at the finish line. Um, yeah, it was nothing, nothing like it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a fantastic achievement. And, um, I think, uh, it's just amazing. I remember when you, you know, you sent me and, um, some of our other friends, like a picture of you just like literally on a, on a sun lounge by the pool, which yeah. must've, must've felt absolutely amazing after, you know, after you'd, you'd done that and you'd got through it. Yeah. So you, you then, the, the cruel thing about it, you finished the race, um, well, the, the following stage, the following day is, um, like a charity fun run. <laughs> What? <laughs> so you, so you, you finish this thing. You stay. You stay in the desert. They. You get. Uh, you get like two. They give you two beers uh, at the finish. Like once the last person's come across the finish line, everyone. They, you then get given those like two beers. They do like the the ceremony for the people that have 
you know, come in the top three. Um, and then, but you stay in the desert that night because it's quite late by the time that people finish. Uh, and they do this like fun run. So people's families and things can sign up to do the Marathon Desire Black fun run. It's 10K, so it's not short. <laughs> uh, and everyone has to wear these like charity t-shirts and you run the charity stage uh, and you have to run it. If you don't run it, you get disqualified. So then you don't, you don't you technically don't finish. Uh, so you run, you run this fun run and then you get on a bus uh, at the end and that then takes you takes you back uh to the hotels where, you, where you're staying um and the you know the bus has got you know it's full of like 40 people that have all run through the desert for six days and all they had is like one wet wipe a day to clean themselves so the bus is it's you know they, they put the air con on and the smell is just horrendous <laughs> uh, and then we turn up to this hotel which is for some reason they put the Brits in like the five star one. I think we pay slightly more for the entrance fee. So you end up, you turn up to this five star restaurant wearing this charity t-shirt you've just from 10 K and you, you stink and you just like, you check into the room and it was amazing. Uh, and you can go into the, you know, there's a pool uh, and there's the yeah, spa bar. It was, that was, that was, yeah, that was probably the, the best thing. Sleeping in a bed again as well. Having slept on the desert floor for, for seven nights or so was, Man, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and I guess, um, I mean, it's such, again, like such a fantastic achievement. And it's, um, you know, with me having done like a little bit of long distance running, I, I think it's you know, phenomenal. And I think anyone who is coming from a background of you know, not having done something like uh, where, where you hadn't really done a huge amount of long distance running, it's even a you know, greater achievement. Um, was there anything, I guess, from the process, uh, whether it was the training or the race that you took back into your you know, daily working life in, in something like anesthetics, which obviously medicine in itself can be very, very stressful. It's a bit of an endurance sport in many respects itself in uh, doing long hours and, and having challenging scenarios. Was there anything that you, did you feel that it kind of like, I guess, changed you as a, as a person from the experience? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I never really had set out something like a, such a big goal, long-term goal that you, you had to specifically work for and train for. Um, especially something that, uh, not only do you have to like train so that you improve, improve your performance, you know, your running performance, but the logistic size of sorting out all the kit that you need, weighing it all, repackaging all of the, um, the nutrition and food that you're going to take with you uh and and kind of looking at other variables such as like the weather uh heat specific training and things um i'd never done anything like that and i kind of i guess retrospectively thinking about it i probably have now taken that kind of approach into into how i approach medicine i university you know i never my the goal was to was to graduate i never really had a specific target or goal what i was going to do do after that um i was quite lucky i stumbled into anesthetics i did an intense i ended up with an intensive care job and my foundation job that i really enjoyed and decided that anesthetics was something i was interested in um uh, and then I just I just applied for a job straight out of it, uh from f2 and was lucky enough to get one uh, in, in taunton uh and even then it was an ACCS job so the first 12 months i didn't really i didn't do any anesthetics so i didn't know if i liked it or not i just quite lucky that 
since starting the training, I was like, it was something that I really enjoyed. Uh, I think since coming back, having done the marathon, the Sabe, more, more focused on thinking about what I want to achieve and longer term goals and how you go about achieving those kind of things. I think that's what led mainly to the, the, the three years out that I've, that, that I've had. Um, it, that kind of time period was a, was a known, it was, I always decided that that was then what I was going to do and what I wanted to do with it. Um, so I think I've become more targeted in, in, in picking an approach and it's all to do with longer term goals. Like what, what type of doctor do I want to be at the end of my training? Uh, how do I gain the skills and improve my performance to achieve those things? How do I get other, uh, experience that will then improve my chances of getting the job and career that I want towards the end of it? Um, I, th- I think I, I learned quite a lot about that, uh, doing the teaching fellow year as well is that I think in, in medicine, in when you're training, you do a lot of training to kind of improve your performance. That's the, that's the aim. That's why we do the training. Um, but the reason that we then put ourselves into situations, uh, um, we're trying to learn and improve from them. You're trying to improve your response to stressful situations. You're trying to improve your teamwork and uh, improve the environment that you work in. Um, we always like with medicine, it's always about improving performance, whether that's yours individually, a team performance, or even the hospital looking at quality improvement projects and all that's your, everything is looking at improving performance. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it like that until uh, having done something like the marathon, the Saab. And I think that's probably what I've taken back into my medical career. It's become a lot more structured and focused. And one of the things I want to talk to you about is, is as you mentioned, the, the time you took to do um, what was a, an education teaching post uh, for a, a year where you actually got to focus on teaching and training and how you could utilize technology again to improve the performance of the workforce. Um, could you speak a little bit more about that, about what you did, why you did it? Yeah, so I um, took a lot of uh, 360 degree um, uh, videos of uh, performing uh, of like a CPR cardiac arrest scenario uh, and using a, a virtual reality Verti platform, created some uh, teaching scenarios. The, the, the idea behind it was... Um, CPR is something that student medical students some will get exposed to in real life and the, the majority won't uh, I specifically didn't uh, get taught that um, it's quite a stressful situation I think the first time that you're you're in that situation it's it's very unfamiliar people were very surprised uh, by it most people won't have come across someone that's that's actively dying you know dying in front of them uh, and so it's how you, uh, it was kind of intrigued about how you train someone to perform, still perform, having been put into a very stressful and different environment uh, without having been in that situation. So he took a bunch of uh, third year medical students and um, gave them all their CPR training and then gave half of them uh, the, the, the uh, virtual reality platform to 
to, to kind of learn and train with and then put them through a couple of um, scenarios bef- once initially with some training and then uh, three weeks later just to see what their response was and how they managed the scenarios. And what we found was that those that had been kind of immersed in a, in a virtual reality environment uh, performed better in a, in a kind of surprise cardiac arrest situation uh, and felt less stressed by it. Um, which, which brought out that kind of interesting thing actually does because they were kind of more, they'd had more exposure uh, into what felt like a more real world scenario. Did that mean just that because of their less stress, they're more, cl- more clear minded and they were able to perform better in those situations. Um, the, the kind of, like I said, the idea behind it came from about improving, improving performance in sport. They've been using technology for you know as as new technology develops it's instantly picked up by sports teams um and they've been using virtual reality and other and other things to improve performance all the time uh we've been quite slow i think in the pickup of that in in the medical profession but as i said like the goals are, are the same uh and so it was trying to bring that in show that it is a useful uh teaching tool yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the overlaps between sport and, and training and other sectors are um, very, very apparent. And like we were talking about earlier with the um, when you went up to Gloucester to have your own personal kind of metrics uh, tested and assessed and get some unique data around how you perform at a, a high altitude, which, again, is, is something that you sorry, at a higher uh, temperature is something that you wouldn't normally be able to access. Um, so that's where technology has brought something to your door and then it's also given you kind of unique data insights on your own performance um, and that's very similar to what you're describing with with putting um, medical students or doctors or nurses into these difficult to access environments and then collecting that unique data on them um, interestingly you know, you've done a lot in team-based and kind of performance um uh, so team performance uh, analysis and obviously your own career has taken you through anesthetics, which is very team-based, but also into retrieval medicine, which is a really, really interesting aspect that not many medics get exposed to. Um, could you speak a little bit about that as well? Yeah, so the um, job, the retrieval job that I was uh, doing at the beginning of the year, uh, it's about two thirds of the work is, um, was flying out to Europe, uh, North Africa and retrieving people back from the UK that had been admitted to hospital. Um, some from intensive care or high dependency units and others um, from like ward level care uh, and the other kind of third is um, taking uh, patients from Jersey and Guernsey uh, across to Southampton for emergency treatment so there's no um, cardio, uh, cardiology service kind of in Jersey and Guernsey for acute MIs uh, or out of hospital cardiac arrest so those patients need transferring um, time critical transfers back to mainland in Southampton. Uh, I think the one way it learned more, I think I got more value of actually was um, the transfers around Europe and North Africa. You, you, from a kind of a logistics point of view, there's an awful lot of people involved in, in repatriating someone. You have the, the insurance company who want to bring the patient, uh, bring the patient back. Uh, you've got the hospital that you're going out to where the patient currently is finding a hospital that you're going to bring the patient back to. You've got the land crew 
in the foreign country and in the UK, transfer to and from the airport. You've got the airport here in the UK that you're leaving from, the one in the airport that you're going to land in in the UK, the one uh, wherever you're flying to. Um, you've got the ground crews when you arrive, you've got to get through security. So there's just a huge amount of logistics and hurdles and loads of different people that you're, you're interacting with. Um, which, which, you know, makes things very difficult. You need to be very flexible, um, and be aware that there are a lot of, uh, issues that can lead to error or miscommunication. Um, and then you throw in the language barrier with that as well. And you, you, things become extremely complicated. Uh, so it's just being very clear um, with kind of what you're trying to achieve uh, and, and kind of planning. You, you get a varying amount of information on the patient you're going to go retrieve. Um, some of the times they don't sound too sick, then you arrive and they're a lot sicker than you thought. Uh, other times they sound really, really sick and then you arrive and they're actually absolutely fine. Uh, all the information that you get is normally probably two or three days out, out of date. By the time it filters through all the different people and gets to you and then you fly out to get them, it's all, all kind of a bit different. Uh, which, which adds, you know, which I think made it quite interesting. I mean, it was a very different challenge. I think the, the medicine and the repatriation side of things were the, weren't the difficult parts. It was more the logistics uh, and how different teams interact, I think was a bigger, uh, kind of a bigger learning point from, from, from doing that job. Um, yeah, re really interesting. And I mean, I think emergency medicine at the best of times is unpredictable and is quite stressful, but if you're then adding in unknowns, like for example, the weather and flight paths and people who speak different languages, um, it's, it sounds, you know, very unpredictable and it's probably something you've got to just deal with as best you can when things happen and just be, be as best prepared as you can. I mean, do you have any particular stories that kind of come to mind, which, uh, you know, you, you just can't believe kind of happened? Uh, yeah. Uh, so the majority of the time you, you would go and you pick up the patient and it's all fine. Hospitals are expecting you. They give you, you don't really get a handover. So you get handed a varying amount of paper, paperwork from the nurse that's been looking after the patient. I think in, in picking up a patient from Morocco, I ended up with an A4 side of paper. This patient had had spinal surgery and been in intensive care in Morocco. He'd been in the hospital for over two weeks. I got an A4 side of paper that was hand, a handwritten note and then a, like a note, a uh, sticky notepad that I think had like five drugs written on it. And that was, that was the information that you get given. You're, you're, you're laughing. That's actually a normal orthopedic spinal handover. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I remember turning up to a hospital, uh, a patient wasn't there. Um, and someone else in the hospital would arrange for another ambulance to take the patient from the hospital to meet us at the airport. Whereas our company had arranged for an ambulance to take us to go to the hospital to pick up the patient. Uh, so the patient was like missing for about half an hour and we found out they were in the airport. Then the ambulance crew was saying they were going to bring them back to the hospital. We were like, no, no, we'll come and meet you there. Um, the majority of the time, I think I turned up to the UK and turned up to a hospital with a patient um, and they weren't expecting them. They did nothing about them, didn't have a bed for them. And that wasn't, that wasn't uncommon. Uh, and I think that's just, there's a huge amount of people involved in bed planning and organizing 
Uh, and sometimes I'd turn up with a patient, they were like, oh, we were expecting this patient yesterday. But with the logistics and planning, like you said, with weather and everything else and, and where you've got crews and where planes are, it's, it's your, you can't, or, you know, it's not, it's not a case of we're flying out to pick this patient up today. We're definitely going to be back with them today. You're limited by, but you know, the pilots are only allowed to fly for a certain number of hours. So depending on what time they arrive at the airport and the plane can actually take off and we land in the country and how long we spend in country getting a patient means that sometimes we'll get, we'll get there and we can't bring the patient back because the pilots don't have enough hours to fly back to the UK. Um, so just all, all those kind of things uh, led to quite an unpredictable thing. But I think, yeah, the missing patient was probably the most. Yeah, most miss, missing patients are the best of time and not good things um, at all. But I mean, it's, it's very interesting because a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is, it is all teamwork. It is all uh, about communication and the soft skill side, which is where a lot of the, you know, the mishaps can uh, can occur. Um, so I, I think we're, we're um, almost out of time, but just to kind of wrap things up, I mean, one of the things that uh, I'd like to kind of ask everyone uh, on the podcast is, is there any specific, um, I guess, individual or example of human performance from either your own past or from anything external that you um, uh, really kind of admire that has really inspired you to do anything that you're doing now? Do, do you got any sort of really interesting examples that you can you can think of uh so the one that kind of springs springs to mind and kind of gives me inspiration if there's anything i think is too difficult or uh unachievable um when i ran the marathon de sabre in 2017 there's a gentleman called uh, duncan slater who's a um ended up being a bilateral amputee from uh being blown up by an id in afghanistan uh he was also running the marathon of Saab in 2017. He, he'd done it the year before, uh, and unfortunately was, was unable to complete it. Uh, he then went away. I think he had quite a lot of issues with his like prosthetics and things in the heat. Um, but came back the following year, the year that we were running it, um, and, and completed it. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I turn up on the start line. I'm worried about whether I'm going to be, able to finish this or not and then you've got a, a guy that's had both of his legs blown off and he's raising money for um walking the wounded um uh i you know i think that was just a a big big inspiration and uh definitely something that kind of when i was feeling quite low when running the mad and the sab that i think you know i was thinking well you know there's, there's no reason why i can't do this i've, I've still got both my legs I mean that's that's absolutely phenomenal. That that's incredible. Um, I mean, what what a what a fantastic effort. And I think even you know to fail at something the first time around and then to go back and, and pick yourself up and, and go back and do it, you know, speaks a lot to that story as well. So um, you know that that's incredible. Um, for from uh, you know, obviously you've got an amazing background. You've done some fantastic things. Do you have any kind of advice to anyone, um, not just in healthcare, but I guess in any sector who you know might be looking at? Uh, wanting to do something like the Marathon de Saab or might want to be taking a, a chance and taking some time out of their job to go and do something, you know, super exciting like a, uh, a teaching technology year or 
um, something like retrieval medicine or flying doctors, what, what would you say to those people who might be a little bit kind of like on the fence um, or, or any kind of, I guess, words of wisdom from your, your own personal experience? Um, I, guess, I, I guess I thought was it, I, I uh, you know, it, it is, it's a scary prospect. It's always quite intimidating whether it was booking, deciding to do the marathon, the Saab, uh, and even taking, taking the time out, um, for medicine, everyone's like, well, what, what, you know, what are you doing? Uh, why, you know, why aren't you going into training? Why haven't you applied? Um, and I, I think, I think the thing is, I don't, I don't think you're ever going to regret taking on a challenge or, or taking the time out, especially if it's something that you're, you're passionate or interested about. Like I said, uh, I looked at my long-term term goal and what I was trying to achieve. Uh, what I've done in, in my time out is kind of helped towards that it's all things that you're interested in so i think if you have a goal that you're you truly want to achieve and that inspires you and drives you if if, if anything that you want to to do uh taking time out from a career or anything else that's going to help you achieve that i think is, is worth doing and you should just throw you know all of your uh effort and resources behind 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 doing those kind of things Awesome. Awesome. Well, Tom, it's been, um, as always, an absolute pleasure uh, chatting to you. And I, I definitely uh, feel inspired to uh, go and at least check out the Marathon de Sub website, um, if, if, if not sign up. I mean, again, it's a phenomenal, um, phenomenal, phenomenal achievement. And um, I guess, you know, for anyone who wanted to, you know, follow you or kind of like reach out to you, um, what's your kind of like social kind of contact details for people? Uh, so I'm on Twitter. It's probably the best one. So that's uh, at Dr. Tom Judd. Perfect. Perfect. Well, listen, man, it's been, it's been great speaking to you as always. And um, yeah, best of luck um, returning back to uh, the NHS now that things with COVID are settling down. Um, I look forward to catching up very soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Cheers buddy.